You ever heard that God always provides just what you need when you need it? Apparently, during that song, there was an incident where some water was spilled on my wife's seat. And isn't it nice that I get to come up here so she can sit on my dry seat? <laughs> just another reminder of God's providential care for his people. You know, tomorrow morning, uh, many of us will sit down um, and exchange gifts and share in the, the, the giving and the receiving of gifts. And for, according to statistics, for 98% of you, all the hard work is done. 2% of people apparently still have some shopping left to do on this, the final day. But for 98% of us, the hard work is done. And I don't know that we think about this a lot, and maybe we're not quite as aware as maybe we should be, of how complicated and how complex the whole entire process is in giving and receiving gifts. Uh, one of the tests about how complicated and complex things are is to see whether you could program a computer to do that sort of thing. Uh, did you know that back in uh, 2012, Google made headlines when it, it's one of its supercomputers was able to scan through 10 million images and with 75% accuracy identify a cat. Now, if you're in this room this morning and you can, with 100% uh, accuracy, identify cats in pictures, raise your hands. And you'll notice there's some little, little kids that can do it. But could you program a computer that you just simply say, get an appropriate gift for everyone on my list? And you might find out that it's a really, really complicated thing. Because the giving and the exchanging of gifts involves this dynamic interplay between cost and between value and between worth. And if you don't somehow manage to line all of those things up, things could go a little bit awry. Have you ever received a gift that was almost offensive because it was so insignificant? I mean, imagine getting a letter from wherever you work, and it says in these glowing words that we're so thankful and appreciative that of all the time and the energy and the effort that you've given to this company. And, and, and as a token of our deep appreciation, we wanted to give you this gift, and it's a $5 Walmart gift card. Are there any of you that say, I would rather not receive a gift if that's the kind of gift you're going to give me to show your deep and abiding appreciation for all my work? Or what about the opposite? Have you ever received a gift that was so extravagant that you've felt like, I can't receive this. It's simply too much. I mean, what would happen if uh, next time you go into work, one of your coworkers gives you a car for a Christmas gift? You might feel a little bad about the box of chocolates that you gave them. And likely you would think, I don't know what's going on, but I, I can't accept this gift. It's just simply a little bit too much. For a gift to be appropriate, it needs to take into consideration the cost and the value and also the worth and the kind of even relationship that we have with a person. One of the things that we will be recognizing in John 12, our text for this morning, is the question of who really is worthy, what really truly is valuable, and what is the cost that ought to be expended for that individual. I recognize that it's Christmas, and for, for, for many people, there's a recognition of the importance of the birth of Christ, and yet there's this understanding that the reason the birth of Christ is so important is because of the gift that was given in his life. And so that's what we're going to actually focus on. So be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 12, and we'll begin re reading the first three verses here. Uh, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. 
And Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Last week, I mentioned that there's this literary device called the whiff of death. And the whiff of death is typically something pretty subtle, an indication that, that the environment, that, that the temperature, that, that, that there's a storm on the horizon. And John 11 begins that theme, and John 12 is going to continue, and we're going to get a sense that there are dark clouds on the horizon. And it, be, it should be confusing to us because we say, well, this is a good news message. This is something that we celebrate, and so why are there so many dark clouds? And that's a part of the theme that John will explore in this 12th chapter. The events John places here uh, happen six days before the Passover. And of course, for those of us familiar with the gospel, we realize then this is six days before the crucifixion of Jesus. And what I want us to, to recognize is how the time and the pace of John's narrative is going to slow way down. Of course, we've been going through John's gospel for several weeks now, months, and we realize from John 1 through uh, John chapter 11, uh, that represents probably between three to three and a half years of Jesus' life. We're, we're now halfway through John's Gospels. We get to John 12, 21 verses. And these last few verses are going to look at probably about 10 days of Jesus' life. So last night our family was out looking at Christmas lights. And you, you see some properties where there's so many things going on. You know, there's the blow-up animals and the lights here and the lights there. You have to slow down in order to take everything in. That's what John's doing in this final week of the life of Jesus. He's slowing down so that we take in all of the things that are happening here in these final parts of the life of Jesus. And so the first place that John takes us is to a dinner, uh, a dinner that was thrown in honor of Jesus. Verse 2 tells us that the dinner was for him. Jesus is the honored guest, um, and, and there's this celebratory event. And of course, it's not too hard to wonder why uh, these three individuals, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, would be throwing an honorary dinner for Jesus. Uh, Mary and Martha were, in fact, preparing for a dinner. Uh, but it was not to be a celebratory dinner. It was going to be the funeral dinner as the family gathered for this funeral of Lazarus. And now instead of that dinner mourning his loss and mourning his passing, now there's a celebration and they honor Jesus because of what Jesus has done in the resurrection of Lazarus and the life that he's given. And it's at that dinner... Uh, that John tells us about something that Martha did in anointing the feet of Jesus. And he talks about this perfume, and, here's, and, and, and John really gives us a lot of details about the perfume. The first thing he tells us, he says, it's a pound of perfume. Now, I don't know the last time you've bought perfume. Probably it's more recent than I have. But we don't typically sell things, liquids, in pounds. Same thing was true of there. You'd often, you'd see it measured in volumes. But one of the things John it's so much that it's actually just easier to measure it in pounds. So likely for a pound, it's going to be about 12 ounces. It's the size of a can of Coke, this one pound of perfume that Mary brings. And it is pure, it is genuine, it is authentic. There's no watering down. I remember a few years ago, I went to buy some antifreeze for my car, and I'm price comparing these two things. And I get out, and I get there, and I realize, oh, this is 50% diluted already. My math was completely thrown off because I didn't realize some of it had already been watered down. But this that Mary has is pure, unadulterated perfume. And John will tell us here that it's very valuable. 
In verse 5, he's going to mention it's, it's worth, it could be sold for up to 300 denarii. A denarii is a day's wages. So essentially, if you think about, uh, you take a, uh, an account for Jewish holidays, you take an account for the Sabbath, that's as much as you could work in a year. So this is a year's wages. According to the ever so reliable internet, the average annual salary in Montana is $56,000. So we could think about this like a $56,000 bottle of perfume. This is somebody giving Jesus a Lexus for the dinner, something extravagant. And not only does John want to focus on the actual gift itself, but John wants us to recognize and to see that Mary anointed Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair. If you were to pick up any sort of kind of an introductory first century cultural book, one of the things you're going to learn about feet, and feet are nasty. Feet are gross, feet are disgusting. Most people probably say today feet are nasty and gross, even if they've been covered in socks and shoes. But the only people who would do anything with feet would be the lowest of the low, the slaves, the servants. In fact, if you remember John the Baptist, whenever he was uh, talking about Jesus, John said of Jesus, I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. And John says, I'm not even worthy to touch something that touches his feet. John takes himself low. And so in a very similar sort of way, now Mary, Mary here is anointing his feet, and she's wiping it with her hair. Now, unless this is Rapunzel, it means it's John's trying to tell us where she is. She is right down there on the ground beside him, wiping his feet with her hair. Mary knows that Jesus is such an honored guest that she will lower herself. She will dishonor herself. She will humble herself in order that Jesus can be lifted up. But not everybody who is there on that occasion judges this to be a reasonable thing to do. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Just like beauty, value is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, what's valuable? What's worth it? Well, truth is that probably something that's valuable to you, something that's worth it to you, might not be valuable or worth it to someone else. Imagine somebody says, well, what did what, you guys do over Christmas? Well, over Christmas, we, we flew up uh, to see my family, spent a week with them, and we flew back. And somebody says, man, that's an incredible waste of money. Because at the end of it, what do you have for it? Nothing. You're wasting your money. You say, well, what would you do with that money? And say, well, I'd go and I'd buy, you know, a 100-inch OLED TV, and at least I'd have something to show for it. And somebody say, man, I'd way rather be with my family than have that TV. They value things differently. And what you value will be shown up in the ways that you spend your money and the things that you do with your money. When Judas looks at the scene, he sees three parties. Mary, Jesus, and a bottle of very expensive perfume. And what Judas sees as the most valuable thing in that scene is what? It's the perfume. Because it has the potential to be sold. And, 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 and John wants us to realize, Judas who keeps the money realizes if we sell this it has cash value, then some of that can end up in his, his pocket. Judas is introduced as the one who is about to betray him. How valuable was Jesus to Judas? He was only as valuable as he could get something out of him and get something from him. So if you're to ask Mary, is he worth it? Mary says, yes. You ask Judas, is Jesus worth it? Judas says, no. Seeing the same thing, but assessing a very different value 
Have you ever received the gift that was too extravagant here? Judah says it's too extravagant. You know, when we talk about the Christian life, I think it's important that we recognize, we do emphasize, and I think it's an appropriate emphasis, that the importance of kind of this verbal profession and confession about who Jesus is. As a Christian, we need to be able to say Jesus is worthy. Jesus is valuable. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. But what we also learn from Mary is that we need to declare his greatness by our deeds. Is he worthy enough that you would give him that? Is he valuable enough that you would sacrifice this? And it is in our actions that we, in, in essence, that we, we uphold the very confessions that we make with our mouth. There's many people who say, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. And then they might go out and make decisions that don't even a factor for Jesus. And if you're watching that, you should be asking the question, is he really that valuable? Based on what's being done and the choices that a person makes. However much you value Jesus, it will be determined by what you believe is appropriate for him and what you believe is too extravagant. So Mary here humbles herself in an effort to lift Jesus up. Jesus will give his understanding of the appropriateness of the gift when he says, leave her alone. She brought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus' response is going to indicate two things to become a theme for the remainder of his gospel. The first is, you will not always have me. It's connecting this back to chapter 12, verse 1, six days till the Passover. Jesus is letting us know that from this point on the gospel, the, the, the countdown timer is running. Time is short. There will be essence in Jesus' speech to people. He's going to make them recognize time is running short. And I think there's a realization for us also. There is a countdown. There is a timer in our lives for recognition and opportunity to see who Jesus is. The second thing is that Jesus mentions that there is an upcoming day of his burial. We have this great passage that says he's worthy, that says he's exalted, and people lowering themselves to lift him up, and then we wonder, well, how does this end up with him in the grave? And that's the very theme that John wants to unpack, is how does this worthy person ever end up in the grave? Well, this theme of exalting Jesus and honoring Jesus, it continues uh, until the point where he enters into Jerusalem. And so we'll jump now to verse 12. The next day, the great crowd had come to the festival, and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, there are all sorts of keys and hints of a royal or messianic entrance into Jerusalem. There's, there's these things that if you're embedded in that culture, you're like, I know what's happening here. Three of those clues come, and the first is the fact that they took these palm branches with them. Uh, the palm branch is a, is, a, is a national symbol. It's like the bald eagle. You see that, and you see what it represents. Uh, there was a time back in uh, 141, um, when this family, the Maccabees, when they drove out the Syrian oppressors from Jerusalem. And here's what Maccabees says about that. It says, on the 23rd day of the second month, uh, in the 171st year, the Jews entered it, that being Jerusalem. So they entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So it's this national liberation symbol the palm branches. And so as Jesus is coming in, as they bring the palm branches, they are expecting and anticipating this liberation. 
Once again, this freedom. If you found a coin in that time that was minted by the Jewish people, you'd see on the one side a palm branch, and on the other these words, for the redemption of Zion. They expect Jesus to be this redeemer as he comes in. The second thing we're told is that they go out to meet him. Well, as a part of that royal entrance and profession, the uh, official welcome of a newly arrived dignitary. So when somebody valuable and important, when somebody royal comes into your town, you don't just wait to the front door and then you open the front door and you welcome them. No, no, you go out and you encounter them outside the city gates and you walk with them and you bring them into the city. So this very official language is used about the welcoming of a royal official. The words that they shout, they come from Psalm 118. And if you're looking in your Bible today, you'll have this little note at the beginning, a song of victory. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem the king, the Messiah, and they give these songs of victory. And, and all seems to be going well until this uh, statement here in verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coal. There's some discussion about what Jesus is doing here. On the one hand, it's possible that Jesus is like, is, is egging them on, is encouraging them, is helping them say, yes, 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 this is me. And he gets on the donkey as a way to say, you've got it just right. The concern with that is remember back in, in John chapter 6, when they wanted to make him king by force, Jesus said, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. The other possibility here is that when Jesus gets on a donkey, he is in some ways pushing back on the imagery. You know, the, the conquering Messiah is coming, and Jesus, instead of going out and finding this kind of this war horse stallion, he gets on a donkey. Um, a donkey that Zachariah said will symbolize the king coming, but he's a humble and a lowly king. In other words, I think Jesus is simultaneously says, yes, you've got it right, but there's something you don't quite understand about the nature of my coming as king. Because notice what John says. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had to be done to him. In other words, the, the, this messianic zeal, there would be no shortage of it. But what there would be a shortage of is an understanding of a humble, lowly king. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as their king, but maybe in a way that's completely different than they expect him to come, so he rides on a donkey. Jumping ahead a few verses to John chapter 12, verse 20. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This idea and concept of the hour and the coming hour, it's something we've encountered in John. And every time we encounter it, it's, it says that the hour has not yet come. First time in John 2, Mary says, hey, we've run out of wine. Go see Jesus. Jesus, you take care of this. And Jesus says, do you not know that my hour has not yet come? In John 7, verse 30, uh, Jesus said some things, upset some people. They try to arrest him. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, we have a very similar thing. They try to arrest Jesus. Jesus won't let it happen because my hour hasn't yet come. We've been wondering, when's the hour going to come? When's the hour going to come? And when we read it here in John 12, we realize the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But I want you to see what the trigger is that causes that hour to come. The trigger that causes the hour to come is the fact that Greeks wish to see Jesus. That's 
really important, especially for an audience like this, that is full of mostly Greek people. Way back in John 1, we were told that he came to his own and his own people, but they did not accept him. This is a recognition Jesus' initial entrance and his coming was for his own ethnic people, for the Jewish people, but they did not accept him. And so the plan from the very beginning was this, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Previously, who could become children of God? Only those of a certain ethnicity, but now Jesus comes so that all can be children of God who are born not of blood or of the will of the flesh but of, or the will of man, but of God. And so now Jesus says, the hour has not come, the hour has not come. But now that the Greeks are seeking me, now that the Greeks are longing for their Messiah also, then Jesus says, now the hour has come for him to be the universal king. God so loved the world. And Jesus recognizes the connection with the Greek people and his coming kingship. Well, so the hour is coming, but the hour is coming for what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what in the world does that mean? And, and if there were a thesaurus in John's gospel for the word glorified, it would have two entries beside it. And they don't seem like they could be the same word. The one word you see for glorified is crucified. And the other word you're going to see for glorified is exalted. So which is it? Is he going to be exalted or is he going to be crucified? There's actually another word that will be used that has this dual meaning. I want you to introduce this. This is in John 12, 31. Now the judgment of this world and now the ruler of, the, uh, uh, of this world will be driven out. And Jesus says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate the kind of death he was going to die. So I want to look at these two words, to be glorified and to be lifted up. Both of these words come from some Old Testament language. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, it says, See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted. And number one, he shall be lifted up. So Jesus is now saying he is going to be lifted up. And the second, he shall be very high. That same word for very high is the same word for glorified. Jesus is going to be lifted up, and Jesus is going to be glorified. And, and we have these images, and, and Jesus' own audience had these images of what it would take to do that. But Isaiah 52, as it prepares to introduce Isaiah 53, is going to show a very downward path to the glorification and to be lifting up of Jesus. In fact, there's this interesting um, uh, event that happened to, to Joseph. Joseph, of course, was in jail. He was in jail with these two other guys. And um, they have these dreams, and they ask Jesus, uh, Joseph to interpret the dream. Uh, the first guy who's the cupbearer says, hey, Joseph, what does my dream mean? And so this is Genesis 40, verse 13. He said, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to office. So to be lifted up means you're, you're going to be receiving a high and holy and dignitary in office. That's what it means to be lifted up, doesn't it? So the other guy who sees, well, that was a pretty good interpretation. I'm going to ask for interpretation, the cupbearer. And what does Joseph say to him? Pharaoh will lift up your head from you, and you'll hang on a pole. You see how the word lifted up can mean to be executed and also to be given a high office? So what does it mean for Jesus? And the answer is both. The way he will be exalted is by being crucified. Mary believed that she needed to honor Jesus and lower herself, and Jesus himself is going to show us that he's going to lower himself. 
See, so as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, there are some different ideas about what it means for Jesus to be the king. In terms of the, the destination, there's a recognition that both Jesus and those shouting, they've got the same des designation in mind. He's going to be the king of Israel. And Jesus will accept the title of king of Israel, but he, he is not going to accept the title that he's the king for Israel alone. He's the king of Israel, but he's the king for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. So they misunderstand that. Uh, for both, there's a, uh, the designation for Jesus is the glory. He's heading to glory. This is the road to glory. They agree with that, but the pathway to glory is something that they're going to have very different ideas about because them, for them, glory means we lift you up, you lift us up, and nobody has to be humbled. But for Jesus, the road to glory involves humiliation. So we have these two pathways to get to glory, and the one is up and up and up, and the other is downward and lowering oneself. Which pathway do you think Jesus will take to glory? Well, we're going to cheat a little bit. We usually only do a chapter a day. We're, going to just, we're just going to peek at John 13. John 13 begins in the same way John 12 did. Washing feet. The head right there by the feet. Those disgusting lowliest feet. But who is the one washing the feet in John 13? It's Jesus. Jesus will find his pathway to glory by giving up and by sacrificing in order that those who come to believe him in him might be lifted up. I asked at the beginning of the sermon if you've ever received a gift that was so extravagant, you say, I couldn't possibly accept that. And the answer, if you're a Christian, should be yes. I have received an extravagant gift that I did not deserve. And that's the gift of the king of Israel who makes himself low so that each and every one of us could be lifted up. I think that's good news, especially as we enter into this holiday season. Because tomorrow you may open your gifts and you may say, you know what, there's nothing really here that's going to float my boat or get me too excited. I mean, this is night stuff, but it's presents. But all of us have a gift that gives us the greatest reason for joy. All of us recognize, not only do we recognize his worth, the worth of Jesus who gives himself on our behalf, but Jesus has recognized our worth. Jesus, is it worth it to give up your life for them? For most of us, we'd say, no, that's a terrible idea. They're not worth it. And what's Jesus' assessment of it? Yes, they're worth it for me to lay down my life. And that gift will come at the most extravagant end. So why would he give that gift? Why would he, why would he give his own life? Again, a, a final closing statement then from John 1, 12 through 13. All who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who are born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Jesus' desire that we would all be born of God, to be children of God. If you've not yet responded to that gospel message in giving your own life to receive the resurrection anew, then there's an opportunity this morning. We celebrate Jesus' birth, and there's an opportunity to be born again yourself this very morning in the waters of baptism. But as we break, and especially as we take time with our families, I want to offer this word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, we never leave empty-handed. We're reminded that we leave here with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, 
and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to respond in any way, uh, the elders will be in the back, I'll be in the back. Just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this song together. Let's stand.